In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 21st Sunday after Trinity, and we only have two more Sundays left in this season, and then we uh, will be in Advent. So I want to encourage you all to start thinking about uh, your Advent practices, about uh, how it is that you're going to spend uh, this Advent season. It will be a beneficial and profitable uh, season if we prepare for it and if we enter into it uh, in the right mindset with the right uh, plan following uh, the right traditions, uh, traditions that we'll talk about uh, maybe here in a couple of minutes. Jesus is in uh, Luke's Gospel this morning, already in Jerusalem, so we know that we're very near the end of this Gospel. Uh, In the previous chapter, he entered into Jerusalem. You'll remember that he first uh, follows the path of Joshua and the people as they go into the Promised Land. Uh, He goes uh, out onto the far side of Jordan. He crosses over the Jordan. He goes into Jericho. You'll remember him speaking with Zacchaeus there in Jericho. And then he takes that steep ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem. You'll remember that we celebrate on Palm Sunday the holy entry into Jerusalem. And so we don't read that passage uh, in this course of readings. We save that for Palm Sunday. And then we see him in the temple courts preaching and teaching in uh, the temple. And so we also read that when he does that, various groups come to him and become angry with him and want to kill him, uh, but are not able to because of the crowds. And and John's gospel says because it's not his time, because uh, the Lord has decided the time when he will allow them to arrest him. So here he is in the temple courts and he spends that holy week from Palm Sunday until his arrest Thursday night preaching and uh, teaching in the temple precincts. And here we get one of the sects, one of the groups, a denomination if you will, coming to Jesus and uh, pointing a question to him. And St. Luke is very clear in saying that the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection and so they're going to challenge him on this point. This is one of the main uh, points of their group's teaching. And we see uh, kind of two different things being uh, missed by the Sadducees. The first thing that the Sadducees miss in the understanding of the resurrection is that the resurrection is not a continuation of this life. People think that the resurrection or being in heaven will somehow just be a continuation of what we're already doing here, that who we are and what we do will just be kept going and we just won't be sick anymore and we won't cry anymore, but that our lives will basically be the same, perfected if you will, but still the same. And Jesus uh, quickly dispels this and he says uh, that uh, the way that we live in the flesh and the way that we live in heaven are going to be very different. And of course he shows this in his resurrected body. He shows how he has a resurrected body and how uh, it's the same as the body that he had in the flesh, but it's so much different. So we see that he is uh, flesh so that he's able to eat, but he's also able to walk through walls. He has a face that one time is recognized by the uh, women and then sometimes isn't recognized like on the road to Emmaus or somehow uh, he's recognized and then not recognized. And so we see that this resurrected body is a mysterious body, that it is flesh, uh, but that it's something more and something different. And so this is a key point that the Sadducees miss, that uh, resurrection is not a continuation, but it's a remaking, a regeneration, a perfecting of that material world that we live in today. 
The second thing that they miss is that they miss uh, just the teaching on uh, marriage and the having of children in general. And you can see how in uh, the reading of Moses, people could start to think that having children was a way to a kind of immortality. And this is not unheard of in the religions around them and in the, the pagan religions around them. The idea would be that if you want to live on, you have to have children to carry your name, uh, to, to carry your image, to carry your likeness. And so to have children and to have grandchildren was a kind of immortality. And indeed, Moses instructs them in Exodus that uh, they are to uh, make sure that there isn't a family lost in Israel. You'll remember that Israel is divided into 12 tribes, and those tribes into clans, and those clans into families. And that there are family names that are very important uh, to be held on to. And so Moses is saying, don't let one of these family names uh, go extinct, if you will. Uh, make sure that these names are perpetuated. And the, the concern was for the women, uh, that they not be uh, left alone or discarded, that they not be tossed aside, uh, but also that that family name would be, uh, would be continued on. And of course, the way that this works, the, the way that this is done, we see in the, the book of Ruth. Right, You'll remember that uh, Ruth and Naomi face this exact problem and that when they go to Boaz, Boaz goes to the elders at the city walls and he talks about uh, who it is that there's another family member who has first right to Ruth to maintain uh, Mahon's name, right? And that this is their duty. And the other uh, closer relative says, I don't want to take that responsibility of taking Ruth. And so Boaz says, then I'll take it as next in line. So the concern was for Mahon's name and, and for Ruth and Naomi, both together. But this practice then gets confused as being uh, the way that uh, eternal life is granted and moved forward. So they had had their, their understanding of the teaching of Moses uh, corrupted and changed. So... The interesting thing about this is that uh, we might think, oh, that this is a, an understanding that's evolved or that uh, there was a previous understanding of the resurrection or that early Jews didn't have that understanding. And just in case people might think that, we get Job, right? And Job is as clear a picture of the resurrection as we could possibly hope for. And most scholars would agree that Job is uh, living uh, before Moses uh, because we don't see any of the uh, of the... Um, Levitical practices. We don't see any of the Levitical priesthood practices. He's probably closer in time to Abraham. And we still see uh, Job participating in this kind of ancient primitive priesthood where he personally offers the sacrifices for his family. He personally is responsible for offering those sacrifices and for maintaining the ritual purity of his family. And you know that he's right here in the middle of this disagreement uh, with his so-called friends, you know, that come to him and say, come on, fess up, you did something wrong. We all know you did. If you just fess it up and admit it to God, then he'll take away this punishment. And so they still have this understanding that um, any suffering is because of a personal sin. Uh, and uh, Job uh, maintains his innocence before his friends and before God. And he also maintains a, a remarkable faith. He, and he maintains a remarkable understanding about who God is and about his relationship to God. You can see in this short passage that we have here that Job's understanding is that God is life. 
Right? He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in some ways, for Job, that means everything. Because God's eternal, because God not only has life, but is life, and because Job is in that covenant relationship with life, he says, I have eternal life in him. So do you see how Job is saying that because God is life, and I'm in relationship with life, I have life. Sometimes we think of salvation or eternal life as being a Willy Wonka golden ticket. I got it, right? At baptism, the bishop gave me a ticket. I said the Jesus prayer. I declared myself a a, a part of Christ, and I got my ticket. And I put it in my back pocket, and then when I get to the pearly gates, I'll show my ticket, right? I said the prayer... Right? That's how we think about it, right? Because we have this very transactional understanding. But in the scriptures, it's relationship. It's all about relationship. My Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. He's saying, He's my Redeemer, and He lives. I'm with Him, and He's with me, and He lives. And then Job clarifies what kind of a resurrection he's talking about. Because he says two very important things. First he says, my skin will be destroyed. Which is really great, isn't it? It's very graphic. My skin will be destroyed. That's what we all have to remember and confess. My skin will be destroyed. I'm not going to get out of this with my skin intact, as we say. Right? So he's saying, my skin will be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So once again, he's talking about a reality, what 2,000 years before Christ, that Christ finally reveals in perfection. That though the flesh died, he remains. And his eyes remain, his body remains. So he is describing for us this truly Christian perfected resurrection where though our skin dies, in the flesh we will see God. And he puts them right together into what we call a paradox. All of Christianity is a paradox. A paradox is two things that seem to be uh, in disagreement with one another, but that are actually in agreement. I died so that you might have life. That's a paradox. I'm going to die to destroy death. That's a paradox. If you want to save your life, you have to... That's a paradox. My skin will be destroyed, and in my flesh I will see God. That's a paradox. They seem to be in disagreement, but they're actually in perfect agreement. Because of our fundamental misunderstanding about what it means to live in God and what these resurrected bodies will be. And then, of course, the question is, if we didn't get that golden ticket, right? We didn't get the, oop, I got it, I said my prayer, I got my baptism, I've got my certificate from the bishop, I put it in my back pocket, right? I'll just do what I need to do until this flesh destroys. We've got St. Paul, who talks to us about this standing firm, this holding fast, this effort that we have to put into salvation, this work that has to be done in living the Christian life. 
And he talks about it in, in the terms of tradition. He says you have to follow the traditions. Now, there are two kinds of traditions talked about in Scripture. There's the tradition of men, right, which Jesus condemns. Right? And what do the traditions of men do? The traditions of men, in general, get you off the hook. That's the traditions of men, right? So he talks about the traditions of men that say, oh, because I've given everything to the temple, I don't have to take care of my parents, right? That's the kind of a tradition of men that Jesus condemns. Oh, because I put some money in the treasury, I can cheat my neighbor? That's the tradition of men that Jesus condemns, right? So I said my prayer, I devoted my life to the Lord, I got baptized, now I can go and do whatever I want to do in business. That's a tradition of men, right? Anything that excuses me from having to live the righteousness of God is a tradition of men that Jesus condemns. St. Paul says, follow all the traditions that you have from me in whatever way you got them. So he clarifies, he says, not just the traditions that you got from me in writing, he says, but the ones that I talked to you about and the ones that I showed you how to do, right? Because he's a true father in faith and this is what dads do, right? They say, I told you what to do. I wrote it to you in a letter. I put a note on the counter. I've shown you how to do it. This is what you're expected to do. However it was that it was conveyed to you, this is my expectation, right? You don't get to say, oh, you didn't write it down, or I couldn't find it in one of your letters, or I never saw you do it. That doesn't get us off the hook. So St. Paul says, the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, whatever it is that we showed you about how to be Christians, this is your responsibility now to live in this way. And he says that you're going to do this so that you can be comforted by God. Do you see the kind of comfort that God provides? The world provides comfort by saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. That's a tradition of men. That's okay. You messed up. Don't worry about it. It'll be all right. No, it probably won't be all right. No, we're all going to suffer and die, right? Things in the end will not go well, right? We're going to have bankruptcies, we're going to have divorces, we're going to have fires, we're going to have natural disasters, uh, people are going to fail in business and marriage. Things will not go well. That's the tradition of the world. The tradition of God is, the comfort of God is, that He will establish us in every good work and word. He comforts us by teaching us how to do His work and to speak his word. That's what gives us comfort. We're going to get comfort by doing what God has given us to do. When we do what we're supposed to do, that's the comfort that God gives us. And that's a comfort that we can experience by being aligned with him, by being in agreement with him, and by walking in his ways. And he, again, he juxtaposes. He talks about the wicked and the evil who don't have faith. So just in case we wanted to get into that discussion again about faith and works as somehow being apart from one another or somehow not being in agreement, he's clarifying for us. He's saying those who have done evil works don't have faith because if you have faith, you do good works. And faith in God, as we've shown over and over and over again, like with Abraham, like with Job, is to say, this is what God told me to do and I did it by obedience in faith. And so he talks about uh, doing those things again that we command and that God will direct their hearts in love. That God will direct their hearts in love. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that they brought up marriage. 
and that and that Jesus answers that question about marriage with a statement about death. He says that those in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for this is his reason they can't die anymore. He's saying that marriage is part of death. The reason we have marriage is because we die. You don't read that in many of the bridal magazines. <laughs> right? You don't see that, not that I watch them, thanks be to God, I don't have to. Uh, in these, you know, I, I don't assume you would, in these bachelor TV shows, right? These dating things. Right? Again, I don't know. I haven't been on any of these websites, but I'm, I'm assuming that on dating websites, they're not talking about because I'm going to die and get sick, I need to get married. Because one day I'll be old, I need to raise children. It gets talked about in a totally different way, right? Because I'm healthy, because I've got all my bills paid, because everything's right in my life, then I'll get married. Jesus says something very different here. They're not given in marriage because they can't die anymore. Marriage is all about death. It's all about suffering. It's all about pain and comforting one another in it. And the role of the wife and the husband is to comfort one another in sickness and to support one another in illness. And that is the model that we have for Christ and his church because that's what he does for us. He comforts us in illness and sickness. He promises that he'll be there with us. And he, he elevates the body to this beautiful place. These, uh, these bodies are not to be discarded. They're to be brought into everlasting life. And so the love relationship between the husband and the wife is to love the body, to care for the body, to nurture the body, to, to provide honor and dignity to the body. And this is the foundation of our understanding of our role, our relationship with God, and for one another here at, in the church. We're not here because everything is great. We're here because we're going to get sick and die. And we've got to comfort one another. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to support one another. We have to remind each other that we will see God because our Redeemer lives, because He's a God of the living, not a God of the dead. And that when we are in Him, when we are living in Him, we are truly alive. <laughs>